This podcast was recorded on September 29th, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double N Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm your host, Jeff Sherman, here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today we have a special guest here from Double Line. We have uh, Joe Galligan. Grandpa Joe. Yeah. Well, he is technically a grandpa, even though, um, you know, so th- that's where the name comes from. Um, I think why Sam's kind of alluding to Grandpa Joe here is uh, Joe's one of the longest standing members of the Double Line family. And uh, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, kind of how you got in the business and how you met the team uh, uh, back at TCW and then joining over here at Double Line. Sure. It's good a day. lot. Good, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, good day. The, the story goes back a long, long time. I actually, uh, from back east, from Boston, if you can't detect from my voice, I went to Penn, Wharton undergrad, came out to California in 81. I didn't, uh, back then, the, the, uh, the career path was you go work, New York uh, Money Center Bank, didn't really want to do that, so I wanted to explore California, so I came out without a job, and I, I lucked into a job in the business at an investment firm, and it was, it was an interesting time, an interesting experience, because uh, L.A. is the home of many large fixed income asset managers now, <clears throat> and most of them were around in 1981, and the difference being is that I could name... 10, for, 10 firms, the 10 largest firms back then, and the size of assets they managed, uh, number 10, 10th place uh, was around a, a billion dollars. First place, I think, was somewhere around 7 or $8 billion. So some of the names have changed. Uh, it's interesting, though, that some of the people are the same, some of the people are different. So I sort of lucked into the business at that point in time. You know, I, I did have a business undergraduate uh, experience. And I, I, I like the business. I, I've met my wife through the business and along through time decided to, to stay out here. And I, back then, I figured that uh, from a career path standpoint, I wanted to be involved. And I, and I actually thought back then, <clears throat> excuse me, back in the 80s, that uh, Wall Street seemed to be the more exciting place to be. And so I went over to work. And this Wall is before the movie Wall Street. Even. This Here is before, the, yes, before the movie Wall Street, yes. Uh, but, but for a tourist, from my standpoint, in that uh, it was a good time to sort of go over to Wall Street, particularly as it pertains to mortgages. So I went in 84, I went to work for Bank of America, and then in 85, I went to work at First Boston. And the 80s were when the mortgage market really started. And it's not a coincidence that the most senior people in, in the mortgage space, I don't care what firm you're talking about, they came up, they were schooled, they cut their teeth in the 80s. Uh, and it was very much a, a learning uh, period. And it was great for me having going to First Boston because in the 80s, uh, First Boston and Solomon Brothers totally dominated the mortgage market. Most Wall Street people 
in the later 80s came from First Boston and uh, Salmon. And the, the even the better part about being at First Boston as opposed to Salmon was Salmon was more of an, an old trading shop, the Philip Brothers oil traders, and that was sort of their approach. First Boston took, I'll call it more of a cerebral investment analysis approach. They had a, a research group, and, and they dealt with trying to uh, formulate scenario analysis uh, with regard to mortgage securities. And so when I went to First Boston, I, I got the uh, the lower-tier accounts, being the, the new kid on the block, and one of my lower-tier accounts happened to be TCW. And, and I think I was there before them, but at TCW they had this new hop shot crack uh, mortgage analyst named Jeffrey Gunlock. And so that's really where I met Jeffrey and, and Jeffrey uh, recognized sort of the capabilities, what, what products we had and uh, that they were better than others. And that really started my uh, relationship with him. And, uh, and Phil uh, came on board at TCW uh, from, I don't know, I think he came from Sun Life Insurance Company. Uh, so he came on board there and they worked together. And so, so I knew both of them. And, and I remember when they... Uh, when they started in uh, 1989, and I remember this, it was actually, my wife threw me a surprise 30th birthday party. Yeah, I was 30 in 1989. <laughs> and, and Jeffrey came. And so at the meeting, he, was, he told me, he goes, uh, oh, you know, he was just sitting around drinking a beer about halfway through. And he said, oh, by, by the way, I got to tell you that uh, Phil and I are, are spinning off and starting our own group, our, our mortgage group. And it's, it sounded very interesting, very exciting to me. And I remember I, when I went to work the next Monday, I told my partner at work, and he's like, he goes, boy, he goes, you should join those guys. Those guys are so smart. They're going to kill it. And I'm like, well, I, I, would, I would go if they invited me, but uh, it was just, you know, they're just starting. That was a two-man shop. And so that was that. It's the old two guys in the Bloomberg. Two, two guys, in, they weren't available. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, but two years later, I get a phone call. I would talk to Jeffrey now and then. You know, hey, showing bonds and whatnot. And he gives me a call, and he sort of explains the situation that, you know, it's him and Phil, and they're looking to expand the group. And would I be interested? And I'm like, would I be interested? Uh, I think I ran over to their office. So, uh, but That's a uh, tough transition. I mean, usually you don't hear people from uh, – it's tough to get from the, the, the so-called sell side over it's, to the buy it's, side, right? It, it was, and especially back then. Because back then, you know, it was, it, was, it was sort of a different environment. And I remember – so I'd have to go through the formal investment – or investment um, uh, interview process. And so one of the senior people over there – I don't think he didn't want to hire me. He's like, well, maybe he told me. He said, why would why would you be doing this? You're just sort of doing this because you'd be. I mean, your income stream would be going down. And it's, I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, that's I'm here for long term. This is sort of something I want to do, and I, I think something I believe strongly in. So I, I knew that they were going to be very successful, and I say I know it because I was at the epicenter of what was going on in the mortgage market. I we saw. I mean, from First Boston standpoint, we would see better than other people really what was going on, the, the analysis process, and I would see the investors out here in LA, which were deemed to be the most sophisticated, and just the approach that that Jeffrey and Phil were taking relative to others. It was like that's a better way of doing things. That's a, a more sophisticated way towards analyzing, and that's that's sort of the future of the mortgage market. Do you recall what they were doing? I mean, does anything really stand out that just separated them? Or? Remember, we have a diverse audience. Yeah, yeah, I don't you, want all the mortgage <laughs> alphabets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's it, it, it was different, and it is different. And I think the the difference, I'll, I'll try to uh, make it as, as, as simple as, as possible, is that there, there's two aspects to it. One aspect is that 
because someone says something so, don't that doesn't necessarily mean it's so. You've got to really do your own analysis on everything. I think the other aspect is that, and, and this part actually holds too true today, is that the approach is different from the sense that the objective in uh, identifying better securities and constructing better portfolios is more geared towards the long term and how securities will behave and perform, not just in today, but across a range of different events or environments. And by comparison, I believe still today that that most people, they allow the current environment to dominate their investment decision-making process. So, so, so it's um, a rigorous approach to kind of creating scenario analysis. Yes, right? yes, right. Yeah. And so, how how has that evolved over the years as we've increased in technology? Um, you know, the skills that on the desk used to be the twelve C was the you know the weapon of choice by bond traders, right? And, and, and PMs and analysts. Um, how has that evolved over time as as you've seen it? The well, an interesting thing is that, and so being in the mortgage group is that, and if you would talk, and, and I talk to many people about it, uh, one of the, two of the questions that they they have in mind before the meeting is they want to know uh, about our prepayment model, and they want to know about our option justice spread model. And... Let's, let's, let's just disclose those models. To people. The, the, we, yeah, no, we, we can't, we can't on, the, on, the, on the first date. Uh, and the fact is, we, we have neither. And the reason is... Uh, is that essentially any model that you deal with is really a uh, two-dimensional explanation of a situation. And investing, in my opinion, is a four-dimensional concept. And so it's, it's a good start to have a model, uh, but, but you need to go beyond that. And I think people rely on these models as, as their crutch from, from an investment standpoint. And the... Let's focus on mortgages. Uh, with mortgages, prepayments of the utmost concern, the timing of those prepayments. And the what, what we do is, with regard to our analytical process, is we're trying to... It's, there's very much a behavioral science aspect to what we do because we're trying to predict how borrowers are going to behave in the future in different rate environments. And... A prepayment model is trying to do that. But what we say is that rates could go up or rates could go down, but there could be a lot of reasons why rates could go up and rates could go down. And depending on what conditions are in place that that cause rates to go up or down, they're going to affect what prepayment speeds are going to be. And first off, we're not smart enough to know whether rates are going up or going down. Secondly, we're not smart enough to know what the cause of why the rates went up or rates were down. So the, the analytical process that we go through is, okay, yeah, we're going to decide at the end of the day for every security we look at, okay, we think that the prepayment speeds will be a certain CPR if rates go up or a certain CPR if they go down. That just means how much of the how, pool prepays that yes, month. Yes, yes. How fast they're going to prepay. But we recognize that that's based on an assumption we're making about the conditions environment economic conditions that go along that cause that rate change but if those economic conditions had been different and prepayment speeds had been different we have that information in the back of our mind and it's it's particularly true with with regard to uh, mortgages is that the first off back in the 80s uh, back in the 80s most people 
didn't know the first thing about uh, refinancing their mortgage. Probably many people thought it was illegal. They couldn't do it. And so these are for the people that buy the house to take out the mortgage. And over time, they become more informed on it. And as they become more informed, the that option becomes more efficiently priced in. People use it more often, which means that prepayment speeds become faster and faster, which, by the way, um, the, the simplistic model would was not picking up that prepayments because they were just... The old PSA model, right? Yeah, and, and looking at historical. Well, in the past, they did this. So in the future, they're going to do this. And, and that, once again, that's too simplistic. So they basically understated prepayment speeds. Uh, and then, but, but an interesting thing over the, since the, uh, the crisis of 2008, that we've actually been seeing prepayment speeds come down, even those rates have come down, which is an interesting phenomenon, interesting situation. And it's, it's just using a model, you're not going to pick those things up. So uh, you, you talk about the prepayment models and the environment. I, I recall um, seeing one that was a very fast prepayment speed model. Was that like 2003? Is that around that, the early 2000s? There was the, this this part where the, essentially almost the entire mortgage market paid down. Yes, or at least like 75 yes, percent did. Is that, I think it was three zero. It's a bit early early 2000s. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what what did you learn about that experience too? Because that that was something that really never happened in in the history of the mortgage market. Yeah, that uh, and and the way that we invest in the mortgage market. Is is uh, I mentioned? Isn't a bad thing. I mean, you just get your money back. It, it, you, you, well, it depends. Yeah. It depends. Right. It depends. It depends what you paid for. So, and generally, the uh, that environment, the faster prepayment environment, we deem it to be the uh, the worst environment to invest in from the mortgage standpoint. And as as a mortgage invest, investor, that's not your friend because normally those faster prepayments come around when rates are lower. Lord, right. So so the more efficient that option is, the more costly it is to be to be short that option. Right. So uh, it becomes uh, less advantageous to to invest in types of securities. And and what we do is we have a process to identify best securities. I, I don't. I'm, I'm. I'm going to step over the line, but just for a second, and then I'll come back. I don't want to be overly technical, but uh, it's all about managing convexity in the mortgage space, and that the convexity of mortgages is is always changing. It changes with rates. It, it gets worse as rates go lower, and it gets better as rates go higher. So it's an easy way to think of convexity is it's how your interest rate sensitivity moves as the interest rates move. Yes, right? Right. yes. So that, that, that's yes. a simple way for our listeners to think about yeah. that. And, and so when you get to those environments, there's not a lot you can do uh, that's good. The worst thing that you can do is because this is happening, I've got to try to do something else or i got to take more risk somewhere else. And, and from that standpoint, it's like but at this point in the early 2000s, we've been doing it a long, long time and we've already you know, cut our teeth, teeth on many things. And our approach when we get to an environment like that is you don't chase it. You just you take your chips off the table. You wait, you wait, you wait for something because something will change favorably that you'll be able to take advantage of. And that's really what we're trying to do. Well, you talk about cutting your teeth. Um, you know, I, I wasn't in the business this time, but I've uh, obviously heard about the experience of Orange County and mortgage derivatives. This is the first time that 
you know, people really blamed mortgages for causing a crisis out there. Uh, it, it wasn't really the catalyst of the crisis, it was the Fed hiking rates in 94. Uh, but maybe you could tell us about the, you know, the Askin hedge fund blowing up, uh, what you guys learned through that uh, experience, and, and kind of what you did to get yourselves out of it. Because you talked about waiting for an opportunity. I mean, that, that was a very tough time to be a bond investor, one but specifically an investor in agency mortgages. So maybe you could uh, tell our listeners about uh, one of Grandpa Joe's stories on that side. Although I, I will, but if, if you were to ask me, Mr. Lau, if you were to say, were you working with Jeff Sherman in 1994? I would have said, yeah, I was working with him. So I'm not sure when you started, Jeff. But I, I, I will say, I'll give you an interesting anecdote. Is that I think it was my 33rd birthday. Um, Joe comes up and we're having a happy hour. It's, after, it's like a Friday afternoon. We're having a beer. And Joe comes up and he said, "Happy birthday!" So did you turn fifty? I, you know? I, like, I mean, I'm like at 33 years old at the time, and I'm like 50. He goes, "You've been around for so long," and I was like, "Well, thanks, Joe. I, I think that's a compliment." It, it was a compliment. <laughs> it was meant as a compliment. So we got, we still have this age gap that we like to joke about here. Yeah, he, he he likes to joke about it more than I do. '94 <laughs> uh, was an incredibly interesting year. Um, I think that I, I, I tell people that 94, in my estimation, 1994 was one of the two great investment opportunities in the mortgage space, uh, the other one being 2008. Right. The and one I, you didn't know about yet was the next yes, one. Right? Yes, yes, uh, 2008. Uh, totally different feelings is that in 2008, it was, uh, I remember coming to work every day, I mean, happy as a clam, just because there were so many good bonds to buy and we had money to spend. The... In 1994, not quite the same feeling, and it was it was very much a, a learning uh, experience. And uh, the the situation in 1994, uh, you did, you point out correctly that uh, you know it was, it was the the year of Orange County and Bob Citrin uh, and David Askin. And I, I've, I have a funny story that I'll tell about that the, regarding the David Askin. And the things that went on there. One interesting thing about, uh, because mo most people weren't around then that are in the mortgage space, but uh, with Orange County is that Orange County's problem was not with mortgages, even though people say that it was. But what it was was they were buying inverse floaters on agency debentures. They actually weren't mortgages. But the problem was not so much just the inverse floater, but then he was leveraging up the portfolio. And this to show the lack of sophistication of people back then is he was considered the guru in California. And actually, California code, municipal code, he actually wrote some of it to get better investment returns for these other municipalities. Uh, so, so it was sort of an interesting thing. But, but there's a few stories about 94. Uh, one I'll mention is that the world was different. Rates were a lot higher. Uh, Short-term rates were pretty high. And I remember back then there was an environment where there were a lot more adjustable rate mortgages in the marketplace. And they were we found them to be pretty attractive investments. And I'm trying to you know, go back in the brain. But I think they, they yielded somewhere in like the 6.5% range. And... We, and they were very short duration, and there were government agency credits, which we thought were pretty good investments. And so we had a strategy, a short duration strategy that we thought would yield or return around 6.5%. And we were going out to investors thinking that this was a great solution and that there would be a lot of demand. And so the problem was everyone that we would go to says, well, that sounds, yeah, that sounds okay, but 
we've got this other guy who's I think I think he was saying twenty five percent return with zero duration, and we're like, huh? Well, something's fishy there. Uh, and it was it was asking, and, and and they were raising a lot of money. And basically, what he was doing, he was leveraging up his portfolio. And he was putting combinations. So, so let me just explain the yes. side. So we're talking inverse flows. So essentially, short-term rates going up is very detrimental to the coupon of the portfolio. Yes. And you're borrowing. You're yes. leveraging up. So you're borrowing at short-term rates. So typically, when you leverage, you go out the curve. So you're playing the difference between long-term and short-term rates. But as the Fed was pressing up rates um, in the market, I think it was something like the magnitude, like 400 basis points. Yes. A huge rate increase considering the environment we're in today. Um, you were getting hit on both sides of the trip. Yes. He was, so I just want to make sure we're, we're explaining about that. Yes. And I, I, we, I remember we got called into a meeting, an investor meeting, because I think they had a, I don't know if it was a fund, or I think it was they had a fund. He had his, this 25% zero duration portfolio in a fund. And some of the investors, people that we'd gone out to and pitched money that didn't give us money, but sort of thought that we knew something about the mortgage market, they were having this investor meeting and they called us into it and i remember we went into uh we went into uh, jeffrey's office and to sit around and, and to listen to the meeting and and the meeting comes up and the investors are like you know what's going on here and and one one guy in the meeting says he goes after the meeting's being discussed for a while says am i the only one in this meeting who thinks my portfolio's down two percent and we're listening and, and jeffrey's basically Talking now, we have some information here. The information we have is that during the course of this day, we have uh, Wall Street firms are sending out bid lists to us for us to bid on securities, and these are securities that were coming out of the asking portfolio. They were being margin called, and the rules of of, of reverse repos basically that the broker dealer has to get three bids and hit the highest bid, and they'll sell them that day. And so we we were being told, hey, these bids are out there. We need bids today. And so we, we were seeing these bids. We have these bids, and we get called into this meeting. And Jeffrey's like, you know, you people, you've, and the only way to uh, deal with this situation is you got to come up with more capital to meet the margin calls. You people have got to raise capital. Otherwise, you're going you're, you're gonna to be in big trouble. There was another investor in the meeting who's like, ah, you, you know, no, and these securities are good. There's not a problem with it. Everything's going to be fine. And, and, and so, of course, the investors like what the other person had to say as opposed to what we had to say. But so we gave him our two cents. And then we said, you know what? We've got to go. We have a fiduciary responsibility to our clients. We've got to go bid on some bonds. Well, uh, by the next day, that portfolio was totally wiped out. So the person who thought he was down 2% was down 100%. And we actually went out and bid on some bonds and we bought some bonds. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a free-for-all. Uh, it was a tremendous dislocated market, tremendously dislocated market. And the, the lesson that we learned is in, in 1994, it was very, that, that was a fun day. I remember because we had money to invest that day. But uh, it was getting publicity, Wall Street, uh, Wall Street Journal publicity, inverse floaters. And it was like, oh, my God, you, if you own an inverse floater, that's like the worst thing in the world you could own. And it that was subprime before subprime. It, it was, oh, man, it's, I mean, it makes subprime look like uh, an agency to venture. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, the, the, the bad publicity around a government agency inverse floater. And it was, our opinion has always been, every bond is cheap at a certain price and every bond is expensive at a certain price. But what's the price today? And then I'll tell you what I think about it. And, but because of the, uh, you, you point out that rates went up. 
And these are securities that were going to go down if rates went up. And we expected that, and we had that factored in. What we didn't have factored in enough was the technical aspect that in the short run, prices are dictated by technical situations. And over time, the fundamentals will win out, but in the short run, technicals will dominate. And in a, it was a point in the mortgage market where people didn't know that much about it. There was not the sophistication level. And there's Wall Street Journal articles about it. So we had clients calling us up, telling, them, telling us that we had to sell these securities. And I remember getting on those phone calls and basically walking through the securities and basically showing that the, the seller was bearing all the risk, that the buyer was buying them risk-free that rates could go up hundreds of base points from there and the securities would, would still have phenomenal yield. And the, the client on the other end would be, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you still got to sell them. And, I'm, and it was like, and so the, the lesson that lessons that we learned were that better understanding of the, this aspect that in the short run, the technicals dominate. And as a portfolio manager managing portfolios that you're managing expectations of clients and that for is you may think and and we thought and we were from a long-term viewpoint that in the long run that was the best investment to own more of those but the clients didn't want to stomach that volatility right uh so So it's it's, it's versus managing the portfolio managing the clients expectations expectations, yes yeah and there's a fine line there that's like the business of portfolio management versus yes you know being in the portfolio management business right yes yeah so that so that was that was a thing that was learned um and it it was very interesting uh another interesting thing is that i contend that a, a simplistic explanation for a bull market or a bear market and i don't care what the asset is is that in a bull market a bull market is a market that goes up in price partly because unnatural money comes in and invests in that product or asset uh and oftentimes tourist money money? okay i haven't heard that term but um and but a lot of times it comes in on a levered basis think of the house the house is the easiest thing if people people have to live in a house they don't have to own the house, but they have to live somewhere. And so if housing prices are going up, people that say, I know, I, I went to the bank and I got a mortgage on my house. And I'm thinking housing prices are going up, that I should get another one. Right. Um, You're covering your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So he's, giving, he's giving me hand head signals. Head like, <laughs> he thinks that he has bad breath or something. A bad breath or I thought he was choking. I'm sorry. So the, the um, Keep going. So, so a bull market is an, an unnatural uh, investors come into play. And I call them, and, and I'll state, let's go back to bonds, that it's levered investors. And what a bear market is, a bear market is an unwinding of those unnatural investors. And in the case of, of, of bonds, it's essentially the, the weak hands. A levered investor is a weak hand investor in that they don't dictate when they can buy or sell. That's dependent on someone providing financing for them. And the problem is, is that in, in the fixed income market, the providers of those financing are, it's the repo market, it's the investment banks, it's the commercial banks who are very familiar with the asset because they're doing it themselves. And when something is happening, they're knowing that they're already long the story, they've got to try to protect themselves as much as possible. So they're going to remove that financing uh, from you, which is going to force you to come up with more money or to sell securities. And that essentially the end of a bear market is when the you've 
the final weekend investor has sold. And in the case in 1994, that after the Orange County debacle, uh, Orange County hired Solomon Brothers to manage their situation. And so this is after rates have gone up now. And, and, and us being bond investors realize, you know, you want to you wanna buy low and sell high. So Solomon Brothers' solution is now rates are up three to 400 base points, depending on what part of the yield curve is. At this point in time, they have this levered portfolio, and it's down in value because rates are up three to 400 base points, and their solution is to sell. And it was, I believe the date was December 5th, somewhere between December 5th and December 10th, forgive me for, but it's a long time ago, uh, in, 1990, in 1994, that that was the bottom tick of the market, the day that Solomon Brothers liquidated Orange County's portfolio, because that was the last weekend investor. You know, fast forward to 2009. I was going to say, what's the, what's the equivalent? equivalent? To, I, I so, thought we had some clients. That were so, so we, we did, we did, we did. Uh, and, and so... And, and so with the subprime crisis in 2007, 8, and 9, is that, and, and we saw, you know, we were aware, being a mortgage investor, we're constantly looking at prepayment speeds and seeing how people are behaving and, and, and looking at underwriting standards. And, and we recognized early on that there were a lot of cracks in the walls. And, and the, the, the thing is that we were in uncharted territory, uh, from a fundamental standpoint in that the last time prior to 08, 09, the last time that the United States had had a nationwide downturn in real estate was uh, before the Depression. And there wasn't, unfortunately, there wasn't good data to draw upon from there. So you're, you're somewhat shooting in the dark, trying to predict how bars are going to behave. And, and, and the part of the problem, and part of, the reason why it got so bad, uh, I, I refer to it as a perfect storm, is because not only the fundamentals were getting bad, at a time when leverage was at an all-time high. And so the amount of unnatural investors were, were very high, and these people were all being forced out at the same time because everyone knew what everyone else had, and they're trying to pull the rug from each other. So, and, and we recognized that it was a fundamental situation as well as a technical situation. Now, with regard to the fundamentals, you can do your analysis and try to figure out what's sort of going on. Uh, and it, you can probably, if, if you know where to look, you know how to analyze things, you can probably do it pretty well. The technical aspect is tougher because people aren't going to tell you, you know, banks aren't going to say, yeah, I've got, you know, 50 billion of these things that I've got to liquidate. And, you know, it's not in their best interest. So that we were, when they, when they started going down in price, uh, it was really started in the end of 2007. Then it really accelerated in early 2008 when the Bear Stern trouble came about, uh, we started buying and we were recognizing as we were buying is that the, we were buying them at levels that we fundamentally, that we thought they were cheap enough, recognizing that we didn't know the full impact of what the technical situation was going to be, that we knew that people were going to be forced to unwind. And in the short run, that prices may go down because of the technical situation, but we still felt as long as from a fundamental standpoint, fundamentally cheap, we could, we'd be willing to take that ride down and then because we knew over, we thought over time it would go back up. And so as, as 2008 goes through and keeps going through and, you know, the Bear Stern thing happens and prices are going down and... And then, you know, the third quarter, you get the Lehman Brothers situation going down. And, but we're certainly figuring, okay, by the end of 2008, all the weekend investors have to be out. You know, beginning of the year, it's, it's got to be, you know, that, this has to be the bottom. 
And lo and behold, 2009 starts, and what happens? The prices go down some more. It was horrific. It was horrific. So this is so this these are learning experiences. Uh, and but what we realized was that well, guess what? Foreign banks don't use a December 31st calendar end. They use March 31st. So they they actually had up until the first quarter to sell their securities, and there was a lot of foreign bank selling in the first quarter because. So uh, I think they were waiting to get let the other people get out of the way. So it's it's and they actually got left holding the bag. And they got caught left, yes, because it kept going down. So it is actually the uh, it was at that time the uh, after the when the when the foreign banks were done there doing their selling in conjunction with the uh, government the treasury uh, PPIP plan yep. that we were intimately involved with at, at uh, back back at our old shop that uh, that marked the bottom tick of the non-agency market because that was that was literally we believe the last of the, the weekend selling yeah these are great stories this is why we came up with the phrase you know, um, the Uncle Joe or Grandpa Joe. Joe with both. I, yeah. I answered it both. Uncle Joe's kind of, I still think of them as, as Vice President Biden. You know, former Vice President Biden, they would call well, him Uncle Joe. B- better than the other Uncle Joe from from the Soviet, what do they call the guy in the Soviet Union, <laughs> yeah, Uncle right. Joe? Uh, so maybe I can uh, just, you know, th- these are great stories. And then we're going to have to have you back and just have, you know, an annual or semi-annual update of, of Joe's stories. But maybe you can tell me now what you do as a senior leader around here. You've been with the firm of, of the team. You know, almost 30 years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do now to impart these wisdoms and story? I mean, I, I've heard a lot of these before. And, yeah. you know, that's why I thought it'd be entertaining to have you today. But, but what are you doing to kind of instill these processes or these ideas and, and the learning experiences to our younger generation? So I, I think that surprisingly, I'm, I'm 100% convinced the way that we analyze mortgages is the proper way. And most people in the mortgage space do not manage money this way. And it's, and I understand why, uh, the, the, the people that are investing, but it's just improper. And it, it's even so much so that the, so if someone comes in the mortgage space, how are they going to learn? May, they're going to learn from where they work. And I'm contending that most people the, at their places of work, they're not properly analyzing mortgages. Well, maybe they want to be a little bit more proactive and maybe they want to go out and explore and get third-party information like Wall Street Research. Uh, Wall Street Research, which is not as prevalent today for cost reasons as it was back in the 80s and 90s, is that back in the 90s and early 2000s, the GSEs were the dominant force in the in the mortgage market. The GSEs are the government-sponsored uh, enterprises, yeah. which are enterprises, but it's like Jenny May. Fannie Mae and Freddie, Freddie, Freddie Mac, Mac yeah. yeah. And they used option-adjusted spread methodology and analysis towards investing. And it's option-adjusted spread methodology is better than many other ways, uh, but it's more simplistic approach than we take. It's back to that two-dimensional uh, analysis in a four-dimensional world. And it, but 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 that was really your only research. And so if you're coming up. In, in the world, in the mortgage world, you would maybe have some information from your own firm or you'd go to get research and this is the research and this, is, this would be your Bible. And both of those methods are inferior. And Jeffrey and Phil, back in 1989, came, came up with this, this idea, this concept of investing in mortgages and it's been proven through time and it's been refined and fine-tuned through time and that people... That, uh, that that work here, 
is that where are they going to get, where, where are they going to go, where do we expect them to go to get information? And, I, and we don't want them. They, sure, they, if they want to read something else from somewhere else, but I try to impart uh, as much as I can about my experiences, about the way that we think about things. And uh, because without that, you know, maybe they're going to gravitate towards these other, these other ways. Uh, it's, it's a process that it's, I mean, our most junior person on the investment side has been with us for more than 10 years. So it's not something we take lightly. It's not something that happens overnight. Uh, when we started seven years ago, uh, 11 people came over that were responsible for portfolio management and trading on the mortgage side. And that's a lot. We didn't have any money to manage. That's because of the, the process that, we're, that we do. Half of those people, and I, I don't know if the number is five or six, but at least so, well, if it's six, it's at least half. Five, it's not at least half. Uh, half That's pretty good at math. <laughs> half of those people, give or take, were analysts, started as analysts. And so what I like to do is, is, is things, as time goes on, is, and I've, through the years, worked with the analysts, sort of helped them get into our mindset as far as how we think about things, what things they should be looking at. Um, and that continued from then through now. We've, within our mortgage group, we've, uh, we've I'm going to say diversified, but we've branched out. We have these sects within the mortgage group. I, I think last time uh, Ken Shinoda spoke yeah. about, and he's, he's one area. There's other areas as well. And we purposefully wanted these groups to, to sprout out because of specific nuances in various sectors. And we use, to support those areas, we do rely on our uh, analysts. And we want them, you know, we get, when they get to that point, we then want them to be well-trained. So, so I, I just impart stories that I have, information. And, and here's what I tell them is I, I give you my experiences and tell you that we're trying to project what happens in the future, but we're wise enough to know we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But we're going to, we try to look at a lot of different possibilities and how things behave and perform in those different environments. And just, so they go through that process, you'll be able to identify the securities that we think should perform better on a going forward basis. I think that's great. So um, Joe, like I said, we'd love to keep you here for a lot longer. But um, my co-host, uh, he's 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 itching over here in his chair. Oh. This is his favorite time of the show. So. <laughs> is this time? I think it's, it's time. time. So, so, so why don't you uh, let it go? <laughs> and uh, uh, introduce uh, Mr. Galligan to uh, the Sherman Says segment. Okay, Joe. So Sherman Says. I'm going to give you a word or, or two, and uh, it's a game of word association, and the, the output is that you give me back a, a word in response. Mm-hmm. I say a word, people have gone on, you know, paragraphs, <laughs> but, you know, let's try to give it down to one or two words if possible. Yes. And when we told someone that no one has actually achieved that, that next person actually did achieved achieve it. it. And That's his right. name was Jeffrey Gunlock. So, of course, <laughs> yeah. so Joe is a, is a crossword fanatic, too. It's one of his, uh, he likes puzzles and things, and so... Um, I'm afraid that he's going to be pretty good at this, so let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. So I'm going to start out with uh, Mr. Sherman, and then I'll pass it to you, and then pass it back to Sherman and alternate with each word. So, Jeff Sherman, commodities. They're very attractive. Mr. Gelligan, cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. 
to me, fascinating. Actually, I'm, uh, there's going to be a theme somewhat. To <laughs> okay, all right. Because uh, I just have to point out that you're one of the few people here that still uses uh, pencils, right? The ones that you have to sharpen, <laughs> not the mechanical pencils. So you're somewhat of a Luddite like me. So <laughs> some of it will be uh, tech-based, I guess. <laughs> all right, so going back to uh, Mr. Sherman. Emerging markets. Tight. Robo-advisors. Got to be careful on that. <laughs> Say what you mean. Say. Questionable. Puerto Rico. Devastated. Duration. Exciting. Subway. Rats. Are you talking about the method of transportation, or are you talking about the uh, place where you eat? You can apply it to either. <laughs> All right. Uh, ETFs. The future. Patriots. New England Patriots, that is. Joe, Joe is a huge Patriots <laughs> fan here, so... Uh, Deflate gate. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> I, I had to. Go there. Everybody knows I'm a San Francisco guy, so the Niners are just comes, terrible. San Francisco 49ers. You can't use terrible, although I know you want to. <laughs> Joe Montana. Hey, I'll, I will go with that. I'm, I'm a Notre Dame fan, so it's... yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. Well, uh, thanks. No, I've still got more. Oh, 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 oh. Sam has actually done some work for this one. Okay, yeah, here we go. I've got a couple more. There's a theme here. Yeah. I haven't picked up on it. <laughs> Electric cars. Uh, quiet. Self-driving cars. Ridiculous. <laughs> GFC. Opportunity. KFC. Colonel. All right, and that's it. All right, so thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can get some more stories from Mr. Galligan in the future. We'll have him back. I uh, hope you found it entertaining or at least a little bit interesting today. And uh, uh, if you have any feedback for us, you can uh, leave feedback on iTunes or find us on Google Play, SoundCloud, and the likes. And if you have any specific questions you'd like us to discuss, please email us at info at com. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you on the next podcast. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, Double Line Capital.